Hi, my name's Alex Kelly, co-founder of Bright Flag, and this is In-House Outliers, a podcast where I interview those who've taken unconventional paths and challenged conventional notions of how in-house legal should operate. I'm joined today on the podcast by Wendy Riggs, an incredibly experienced legal ops leader who has helped build legal ops programs at several high growth tech companies, including Zynga, Twitter, and Airbnb. Wendy, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it and look forward to chatting. Let's start at the beginning, Wendy. Where did you grow up? I actually grew up in Southern California, Garden Grove, Huntington Beach, and lived there until I went to junior high, seventh grade, and then moved to Lake Oswego, Oregon. Okay, so that's a big change in terms of the envir- an environment to grow up in, imagine. <laughs> Definitely. A lot more rain, no warm beaches, but it is beautiful. Kind of moving forward then, why did you decide to study management and organizational leadership in college? So I did things a bit backwards. I put college on hold because I didn't know specifically what I wanted to do. And met my then future husband when I was 20 and got married, had kids and started working for an insurance defense firm, Bullivant Hauser Bailey in Portland as a litigation secretary. And then also while I was doing that, went to night school to work on finishing my degree while raising my sons. So a roundabout way, very backwards, but it worked. Well, it's all about taking the journey that works for yourself. And it's certainly given all of your success in your career, seems like that has been the case. So did you have a kind of a clear idea, maybe coming out of high school, then what you wanted to do in in your career? Or were you always interested in that kind of paralegal career path as a first step? No, I actually had no idea what I wanted to do. And I landed over at a large insurance company and working as a secretary and the one of the lawyers on the team wanted to introduce me to his father-in-law who was a partner um, at a law firm and I sort of fell into it and it was really I think the best thing that could have happened because I obviously am still in that you know space and I've been doing it my entire career. So it worked out well. I thrive under pressure. I really love the idea of putting all the pieces together. So the fact finding, and it's just fun learning about all of the different things that we come across through litigation. You learn a little about a lot of things. Absolutely. And can you give us a sense of what your initial responsibilities were when you made that transition to becoming a litigation paralegal? What were the kind of core things you were working on day to day? I did a lot of document review. So gathering documents, document organization, document review, and creating chronology. So developing those timelines, deposition preparation. So pulling potential exhibits to support our sort of chronology and the facts as we knew them based on the documents and witness interviews. So it was really an interesting phase where, again, it was just digging through everything and coming up with a story. And I really enjoyed that aspect. 
as time went on, I did more prep for trial and things like that. So it just grew. My initial litigation role at Bullivant Hauser Bailey was not as large as it became when I moved over to Stolburn. And Stolburn is a smaller practice or a boutique practice in Portland, Oregon. Did you find like working in a smaller law firm like that meant that you were given more responsibility working as a senior litigation paralegal? Yes. On the defense side, my prior to going over to Stolburn, and they were doing a lot of plaintiff class action work, just a very different caseload there. I learned quite a bit there. Back then we had broker-dealer cases and all of these different things that I hadn't necessarily worked on previously. But then the last two or so years of my time was still burned about five years. We took on the farmer's insurance multi-district overtime pay litigation, which the MDL panel sent it to Oregon District Court here. I was the lead paralegal working with our firm and the other two firms out in the Bay Area. So Stolburn was serving on the steering committee and we were designated as liaison counsel. So we were really leading the efforts here and preparing for trial. We were also designing and sending out our class notices, interviewing class members for lead plaintiffs. So I worked on all of those things, which was really interesting because I had never worked on any type of litigation at all that fell into that area. So it was a lot of work. We prepared for a three-week liability bench trial, and I handled technology in the courtroom. I was there and in trial every day. We went through that, and we then moved on to an individualized damages phase. So then we were prepping constantly every day for the next day's damages phases for each plaintiff. So it was quite an intense time, but I learned a lot and loved it. That sounds firstly like an incredibly intense experience. And certainly from my own experience in my career, those kind of very busy periods where a lot of responsibility is thrown at you, your learning curve is much steeper. But the next step in your career was then you moving to the Bay Area to join a much larger firm in Dwayne Morris. What led you to that decision? Well, interestingly enough, the defendants were represented by Stoll Reeves in that farmer's overtime litigation. And I was approached after the bench trial by Stoll Reeves asking if I'd want to come over to their firm. So I ended up doing that. And in that process, we had a practice in the Bay Area, but it was mostly focused on asbestos work. So much of the litigation that was coming to Stoll Reeves from the Bay Area was being done in Portland. So I ended up transferring down to San Francisco with two other partners to Stoll Reeves' office there. And we were tasked with sort of building that litigation practice there within our San Francisco office. And as you can imagine, Stoll Reeves was not a big player in the Bay Area. So I wanted to stay in San Francisco and I wanted to do more. And that's how I ended up going to Dwayne Morris and really 
the idea with Dwayne Morris was they wanted the trial experience and I was going to trial across the firm for all West Coast trials. So I basically did 12 trials in two and a half years. It was a lot of fun, but I experienced burnout. <laughs> so it was such a great time, but it was very exhausting. And what would you say were the kind of core differences, Wendy, between your experience working in a kind of maybe smaller team at Stolburn and larger firm life at Dwayne Morris? It was nice because I had an ability to collaborate with my peers. We were getting very different cases, large cases. It was just a completely different experience than I was dealing with at Stolburn and Stoll Reeves. And we had support, obviously, when you're working in a smaller firm, you're wearing a lot of hats. So it was nice to have that extra support, but I was in the weeds anyway. That's how I learn. So it was a good experience. And I really enjoyed all the lawyers I worked with as well. And I'm in touch with most of them today, even. Well, that's always a good sign, Wendy. And I'd be interested to understand, what was the scope of your role as the West Coast trial coordinator? So I literally came in and did all the pre all the exhibits, all of the clips that we were going to use on the technology front. So utilizing trial director or sanction and really working with the trial team to go travel to whatever court we were going to be in, and then also be in trial every day. And as you know, things happen every single day, working on all of those changes we would make for the next day. You know, if a motion was having to be written, I would find the evidence for that. And all the time we would be prepping for the next day of trial. So I was literally with every single trial team doing that trial prep and going all the way through trial. That obviously, presumably, was one of the contributing factors to the burnout you referenced, Wendy, in terms of how intense that role was. Exactly. Yes. I mean, it was fun. I thrive under pressure, so it's great. But when you're doing so many like that, there wasn't enough downtime. So when you're just going from one to the next, it was exhausting. But again, it was fun, too. And what led you then to moving in-house with Zynga? I thought the opportunity to do something outside of a law firm, uh, it was intriguing to me. I had no idea what to expect. A friend who was a partner in a law firm knew the in-house team very well and our general counsel at the time. So I was referred over and I was hired by Renee Lawson, who was hired just a couple of months before me to lead their litigation efforts. And she was deputy general counsel at the time. And I was her first hire. So we both were learning. She had come over from Morgan Lewis and we were both learning uh, everything there was to know about in-house and specifically working for Zynga. It was the wild west. I started in February, 2011. We went public in December of that year. We were growing like crazy. They referred to us as growing like lightning in a bottle. Um, and so we were doing a lot of acquisitions of small studios all over the country as well. So I really had this experience that, that laid the foundation for where I am today, for sure. 
And it's a big cultural shift working in a the kind of law firm environment and then moving in-house into any technology company, but a fun one, I imagine, or a fun environment like like Zynga, where where the core business is so interesting, where you're building these interesting social games. So was that a major shift in, in terms of the working environment? Yes. And I'm kind of laughing because it was such a change for me working in a law firm. And one of the things I did frequently was work with our clients to identify and gather data documents that we needed to collect for litigation. So going someplace like that and you're like, oh my gosh, we're not buttoned up. Things aren't organized the way they should be. And I say should be quote unquote, because coming from a law firm, it's much more rigid in the way we look at things, right? So in-house, you're juggling so many things and you're constantly moving. And while I was working crazy hours my entire career in law firms, it was even crazier going in-house to Zynga. And then we also, after going public, we were hit with, I don't know, 30 plus securities class actions and all sorts of things. So it was um, quite a shift, but I was able to do so many things across the board, whether that was information governance work, integration after acquisition of studios, writing new policies and best practices, really putting some guardrails up around how we worked in-house. It made it quite interesting and gave me the growth opportunity that I needed at that time too, needed and wanted. Well, it sounds like it can be daunting. It is also a huge opportunity to help build a team from the ground up in the right way. And you mentioned you were the one of the first hires into the litigation team. What was the structure of your team managing litigation? So it was Renee and I for quite some time. And then we ended up bringing in another litigator. And it was really just the three of us. Although... Our general counsel also was a litigator. You know, he was very well versed in this and in that space as well. So we had quite a good team. Um, later, we ended up hiring, she is actually still with Zynga, our litigation, I want to say support manager. So she ran all of our data collections and relativity and all of those things as well. So it was really just that core group for quite some time. And then we hired another junior paralegal at the time, but we were a pretty lean team throughout the entire time I was there. And obviously that was your kind of first major shift in-house and legal operations was starting to become more of a well-understood concept to kind of drive efficiency in everything related to legal service delivery. Did you have any mentors at that stage in your career that started to play an important role in your own career development? Yes, I did prior to this in the law firm space, but Renee Lawson has been a mentor to me since she hired me back then. She continues to be a great resource for me. I ended up working with her for her again at Airbnb and she's always been able to challenge me by giving me really great work, but also making sure that I am learning. So I had the autonomy. She just really supported me throughout this 
second half of what I would say my career path. And so I was very lucky in that regard. That's fantastic to have that champion and person that you can turn to and know that they're going to give you direct feedback. They're going to make sure you're challenged and developing. And you then went on to join Twitter as senior manager for e-discovery and litigation operations. Was that role similar to your role at Zynga or were there kind of additional responsibilities sitting within that? It was similar, but I'd say larger. I mean, one of the really nice things about moving over to Twitter at the time, we didn't, we weren't under so much pressure with pending litigation. And so we had, it was nice to sort of come in and think about how to partner cross-functionally with IT, information security, and other teams across the entire organization. But also we had that time to think about our policies and practices that we were going to put in place. I oversaw everything but our commercial teams, let's say from the contracts perspective. So, which is why we ended up with my title in litigation operations. So all the financial management, data management, things like that. And it was a much larger role in that as we built out best practices, I really partnered closely with IT and information security. And that made all the difference because as you probably know, there's so much, oftentimes there is a lot of conflict between IT and legal. I focused on trying to bridge that gap there. And it was such a great experience having them contribute to these policies. So we were all on the same page and it was a very collaborative group that worked together. So it made things much easier when we were dealing with things like asset management and all of the things that are litigation readiness efforts. Absolutely. And as you alluded to at the time you were at Twitter, which I think was from kind of towards the end of 2013 through 2017, the concept of legal operations started to become far more well understood. And it sounds like a huge proportion of the kind of clock 12 core competencies were sitting under your remit. What would you say the most impactful technology projects were that you worked on while you were at Twitter? We spent a lot of time on our spend management. I started at Twitter the week we went public. So having our visibility across our spend, sort of bringing together all of the different teams within the legal department so that we had that visibility and really, rather than working in silos, that was one of my main focuses there. We did spend a lot of time educating our internal teams on homegrown systems. We need to be able to manage how to get that the data out now that you have it in the system. So much more education around, I guess, requirements when we're developing internal systems and practices there, and then really focusing on streamlining our spend management. And at the time we were utilizing Tracker, the other technology we were using would have been just relativity and things like that. We had our homegrown matter management system that our deputy general counsel developed, which was amazing. And we iterated on that, but we still weren't at that place where we were 
leveraging document management or matter management, and we had not implemented yet ACLM at that time. Obviously, you had really deep domain experience in litigation and great subject matter expertise in that space, and I imagine relativity was a fantastic addition to the tech stack and driving efficiencies in that sense. In the context of spend management and financial management, did you have a kind of a learning curve in becoming more kind of financially literate and understanding the importance of accurate forecasting and accruals and budgeting processes for your finance team, particularly once you went public? I did when I went to Zynga. And so coming over to Twitter, I had all of that experience at Zynga. Originally, we were printing out our invoices from outside counsel and they were going through, you know, the paper file was going through all the right people to review them. And so we did work to implement an e-billing system there, but it was a very manual process dealing with accruals, forecasting, and actual spend. So I was able to come over to Twitter with all of those learnings from previous many hours trying to think about streamlining our process at Zynga. So we really iterated on building out that spend and working with finance and accounting to build out best practices around accruals and forecasting. It was still a big job, as you can imagine, it usually is. But we were not at that time leveraging, let's say, technology for the accrual process, right? Whereas now we would have that go through our e-billing system versus our manual, hey, respond to this spreadsheet with your accruals and forecasting so that we can enter it into our own system. We worked to streamline that with finance and accounting, but it wasn't where it needed to be by the time I left, for sure. I mean, we just didn't have that technology in place at the time. Thankfully, the world has moved on from that point. Certainly the Bright Flag platform as well, that ability to automate the capture of of accruals data and to have one holistic picture and visibility into your spend, incorporating accrued domains, invoice domains, pay domains, making sure finance has got accurate data, that you've got accurate data for budgeting purposes. But I imagine also a good way of understanding the fundamentals of why those processes are so important in managing the finances of the legal department. Exactly. And just really, as you mentioned, partnering so closely with accounting and FP&A were key, right? And how I learned there too, that how do I really want to think about future reporting so that I can build out whatever tool we're using to ensure that there's a data point that we can capture. So I try and think ahead because at some point I know finance is going to say, Hey, I'd like to run this report, is it available? And it's like, well, no, we've never captured that data element. So we're going to have to go back. And so I try and now think about all of those ways we might want to report in the future and build it out with that in mind. I think that's such great advice, Wendy, and involving your finance stakeholders and partners early in that process. So as you say, At the point of implementation, you're capturing all of the data points that are going to be necessary and useful today, tomorrow, the next day, can save a lot of pain and make sure everybody's getting what they need out of the the process. 
you at that point in your career have kind of transitioned effectively into becoming a real expert in the area of legal operations. Is there any advice now with the benefit of hindsight you'd give to others who are maybe working as paralegals, considering moving into the area of legal operations? Definitely. I think the first, being a paralegal in a law firm is this is probably a bad choice of words, but I want to say limiting, right? There aren't a whole lot of places for you to grow in that role. When you're going in-house, you're working for one client, but you're doing so many things across the board. And I think even being a paralegal in-house and then growing by adding responsibilities is important. And you can kind of find being in-house what you like to do. And oftentimes, certainly in these younger pre-IPO companies that I've worked with, there's less structure. So you really have the ability to branch out and focus on the things that you want to do and like to do. And at the end of the day, I think a lot of it all comes together. Like for a good example is the information governance work that we do feeds into a successful e-discovery plan where previously it was the opposite, dealing with the e-discovery side created some framework for information governance. So you start to see how you can look at things across a single organization and streamline and bring things together without reinventing the wheel. And so having that interest for growth, I think that first step would be coming in as a paralegal from a firm in-house and then really focusing on what you enjoy and where those opportunities are to grow in your career. I think we see that every day that there are an ever increasing number of legal operations roles being created in companies that are starting to scale their legal department. And you have this next generation of general counsel or CLOs that are, are fully bought into the value of legal operations. And it's one of the most commonly discussed things here on the podcast is that route from paralegal to legal operations and how many of those skills are transferable and what a great journey that can be and such a rewarding one. You then joined Airbnb. You referenced the your mentor, Renee, who played a really critical role in your career. Was that what attracted you to, to joining Airbnb, the opportunity to work with her again? I actually left Twitter to consult and Renee was one of, you know, a big champion for that was go consult, do some fun things and see what's next. And so when I began consulting, I had projects with Airbnb that under Renee and team, but I also had other projects with companies that I guess know people in that community, right? So I was able to jump in and do some work for quite a few other companies too while consulting. Airbnb, the draw was obviously working with Renee. Ben Lee at the time, who I worked with very closely at Twitter, he had left Twitter to go to Plaid as the general counsel and then ended up going to Airbnb as well. So my two favorite people were there and I really was excited to be working with both of them. Ben went on to become the general counsel at Reddit, but it was fun to go in, even though the company was almost 10 years old, coming in and just sort of figuring out how to put these playbooks and processes in place and consider where 
technology should be incorporated because they really didn't have anything in place. In fact, the budgeting issue was one of the funnest to tackle because it was really, I was starting from scratch, although we had a tool, but I worked on building that out. So I had these great experiences consulting. And then as we shifted into more pre-IPO mode at Airbnb, Rob Chestnut was the general counsel. So Rob and Renee had asked me to come in and build out the legal ops function and also really focus on the information governance program build out. So those were really fun. Yes, I'm crazy, Alex, but I found them fun and exciting challenges to tackle. Not to mention that Airbnb was a really interesting company. It is a really interesting company. Obviously, I I use it all the time and it just seemed like a great place to be. I'm a big Airbnb fan. I was only looking at booking a vacation for our family in Portugal next year and was looking at some <laughs> wonderful properties and Airbnb were offering in the area we're looking to go to. So it's an incredible company, incredible success story. And I imagine hugely rewarding, not only to have that chance to work with two people that you have a huge amount of respect for and know that you can work really well with, but also to be part of that growth journey. And as you say, build a legal ops program from the ground up. And it's something I was talking to Mateo Sanchez on the podcast about before that it, it strikes me that there can be kind of different profiles of legal ops leaders. There can be those that are very good at kind of maintaining systems and processes and that there are others who just love building programs and working on new projects. And it, it sounds, Wendy, like you maybe fall into the latter category. And as you said, get a lot of fun and enjoyment out of that opportunity to build a program. I'd be interested to understand in, in the context of information governance area, what were the kind of core things that you did to mature operations? Yeah, that's a great question. I guess I should go back. There's one thing I, I want to say is, is information governance sort of started to come back. I mean, bigger than records management, right? But come back to become a very significant sort of pillar because of the privacy laws and regulations that were being rolled out. So you saw more of a shift to be proactive on the information governance side versus that reactive information governance, which flowed through from e-discovery and litigation. So one of the main focuses that I saw and I do see across the board with companies is how do we, I guess, balance those data requirements to ensure that we're meeting the privacy laws and regs, but also balancing the corporate risk and maintaining data just for as long as we need it on the other side, as far as our retention requirements, and then also figuring out the legal hold aspects. So that was clearly something that we could start with that would feed into our e-discovery vertical, which I oversaw information governance, e-discovery, legal technology, and just operations as we know it, suspend management and supporting legal leadership in any way we could. So those were, I feel like a lot of those things come together. The technology aspect for sure helped us on the implementation of an email retention program. Um, we worked with the entire organization, creating a task force. Again, I think the most successful 
you're going to see is by including cross-functional team members so that they have visibility and understand why legal is moving forward with certain initiatives and things like that. So that's kind of the approach I took when building out that function within the department. Great insight and advice there, Wendy. Obviously, that kind of, first of all, concept of moving from a reactive focus on the e-discovery program to the kind of proactive preventative measures you can take with a really strong information governance as the kind of front-end process and risk mitigation measure and that balance that you need to strike between obviously compliance with privacy laws or other laws and commercial risk and bringing a team and those kind of cross-functional teams on that journey with you and and getting their buy-in for what you're trying to achieve. I'm interested to understand you referenced your kind of your consulting business and work as a consultant and I understand you've been focusing on that since finishing up your projects with Airbnb back in, in 2020. Are there any kind of trends you're seeing with clients at the moment with your consulting clients in terms of their areas of focus? I was seeing a lot of focus on the information governance component, but also I feel like document management. So implementing document management systems has been something that I've been focused on over the past couple of years with a couple of clients as well. And we're seeing that focus, and I, I want to say those systems are super helpful in that we're so many teams are working in silos, right? So if you if I were to leave a company tomorrow, a lot of it's done via email and I'm saving things in my own O365 instance, or I'm sorry, SharePoint or OneDrive, or perhaps it's Google Docs there's a disconnect, right, across the team. So if somebody leaves, you're losing significant institutional knowledge. And so really focusing on how to ensure that if somebody leaves tomorrow at an organization, the team has visibility and can pick up the ball and keep going with it versus starting over. So I feel like that's a trend. And the reason I I give that example is the document management comes into play there as well, as well as the information governance side. So let's delete email, right? Have an email deletion policy, but ensure that our corporate records that are sitting in email are not sitting in email. And then also making sure that we have a way for our teammates to have visibility into what we're doing. So somebody can go on vacation, somebody leaves the company, We have the ability to look at where we left off. So I want to say that that's a long-winded way of saying working more collaboratively across your department with increased visibility and transparency has been the focus and leveraging technology and policy improvement around that. And I think obviously the pandemic was a, an accelerant for the adoption of those kind of core systems, mission critical systems for legal departments, whether it is document management or your information governance systems or your financial management systems and your e-billing that is underpinning the visibility that you need to manage your spend management processes. And I'm interested, Wendy, to understand in how you think about building relationships as a consultant partnering with legal departments, which 
is presumably quite different to being part of the in-house team. And I imagine not every scenario is like the consulting work you did with Airbnb, where you're working with your mentor and, and people that you know really well. So how do you think about that dynamic of building relationships as a consultant and adding value to the legal department? Wow, that's a great question. And I have all sorts of thoughts on it. It It is very different. I tend to want to partner very closely with any clients that I work with. And I've been very lucky to mostly work on a referral basis. I want to be impactful. I don't want to be a consultant that is really sitting out here and not creating or developing a relationship and understanding the needs of the team and how they operate. I'm big on culture too. So what happens at one company doesn't happen at another. I'm not a sort of templatized consultant, I guess, is maybe how I would put it. So I really like to develop those relationships and be a partner, not just come in and just offer advice. I also like to get in the weeds, understand how things operate, what works for this company in particular, and then also just developing those long-term relationships so I can be a resource going forward. I really feel much more comfortable when a company hires me and brings me into the fold. That's my approach. I look at every project that I have, again, independently based on the company, the culture, and what they're trying to accomplish. So that has served me well so far. I think it's more of a relationship, right? I'd be an extension of them. So when I was hiring consultants to work for me, it really was, you're an extension of us. I want you to be feel part of this team. And so that's how I approach those relationships. I think that's such a great insight there, Wendy, into a kind of the value that external expertise you can bring as a consultant and how best to set up for success, starting with kind of listening to the organization, understanding their key priorities, not taking a kind of a generic approach and rolling out a standard playbook that may not align with what they're trying to achieve or how they want to achieve it. And, and something you touched on, I think is so true in, in the legal ops community. It is still a tight knit community and the power of that network and those referrals in working with like-minded people, I imagine, and doing the fun work you said you, you enjoy most. It is such a fun space to be in. And my final question for you, Wendy, this has been a fantastic insight into your incredibly successful career. My final question is unrelated to the world of legal operations. <laughs> what do you enjoy doing in your spare time? Oh boy, I am a food and wine lover. So as you can imagine, I love to cook. I love to try out new and different wine regions. So I do that. I have two grown sons that I'm super close to, and they live up here in Oregon and see them as much as I, as possible. Also cook for them every now and then if they want to come over, but I also have two French bulldogs. So they're sort of a full-time job sometimes, very much a part of the family. I think for me, my kids grew up, so I replaced them with other responsibilities like dogs. So, so I spend a lot of time doing that. I'm also big into travel as well. I focus on those things and having a good time outside of the work space. And any wine tips for us, Wendy? Any particular wines you're enjoying at the moment? Uh, 
Yes. I mean, Oregon has an amazing, the Willamette Valley has amazing Pinots, but I am also a big fan of Sonoma and Napa and learning much more about Walla Walla wines as well up in Washington. So amazing, good wines across the board. And uh, if anyone wants tips on where to go, I have lots of them. Well, I'm a big Pinot fan myself, Wendy, so I might I might ask you for some uh, some tips and some Oregon Pinots to, to look out for. And Wendy, thank you so much for giving us so much of your time. This has been a really fun conversation. Really, really appreciate it. Thank you, Alex. I really appreciate you inviting me on and it's been fun chatting with you. I'm Alex Kelly, host of the In-House Outliers podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Bright Flag, an AI-powered legal operations platform where corporate legal departments gain visibility into operations, maximize productivity, and engage with outside counsel strategically. If you like this episode, then you can find more information in our show notes. If you want to hear more, then you can also find more episodes at brightflag.com forward slash legal hyphen operations hyphen podcast. Thanks again for listening to the In-House Outliers podcast. We'll see you again next time.